This is Undark. We're a magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to Episode 9. I'm David Corcoran. For our cover story, a deep dive into some very troubled waters. The place is Flint, Michigan, a city that's been much in the news over a drinking water crisis that endangered its 100,000 residents, and especially the children. Undark assigned reporter Steve Fries to go to Flint and spend time with some of those residents and with local officials and water quality experts. His report is featured on Undark, and he joins us now. Hi, Steve. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, first of all, let's just get some basic facts. What kind of place is Flint and what happened to its water supply? Well, Flint is a post-industrial Midwestern city. It is one of those cities that is emblematic of what has happened to the manufacturing base in this country. It is now mostly black and very poor relative to other cities. There's there's still pockets of money there, but for the most part, it is a fairly depressed city, uh, has been for a very long time. And what happened to the water is a result in a lot of ways of that legacy of poverty in the area. The city is very poor and it has also shrunk dramatically. There used to be about double the population there and you have a water system that is structured to serve thousands more people than exist there anymore. So the cost of delivering water from Detroit, which is where they were getting their water for several years, was very high. The number of ratepayers in Flint to pay for the water had dwindled. And so the city was frustrated by what were some of the highest water bills in the country. So in order to sort of deal with that, they decided to leave the contract with Detroit and turn to taking the water from the Flint River while they waited for this new straw, this new pipe from Lake Huron to be built. So they switched over the water in April of 2014. And what actually happened was they switched the water treatment, but they didn't put in the typical corrosive controls that normally are in place when raw water is taken out of any water source and eventually put into people's homes. So there were questions about whether it was cleaned up properly, but also, more importantly, the chemicals that are normally added to prevent the pipes from deteriorating just weren't added. They just weren't put in. And so in the case of the lead pipes, they started breaking away. Pieces of lead, minerals of lead were, were leaching into the water. There were increasing numbers of water main breaks because the water mains themselves were more fragile. And ultimately, the water that got into many people's homes across the city was poison. Did people actually get sick or die from this water? People definitely got sick. Um, there were plenty of examples of um, people who had lead poisoning, and it led to a variety of um, behavioral diseases, developmental problems. There was also a parallel spike in Legionella disease. And there were 12 people who died and something in the neighborhood of 80 people who were um, diagnosed with Legionella disease. And that outbreak is also being attributed to the problems with the water supply. One of the things that shocked me as a reporter 
was how little it turned out that the experts actually knew about what is in our water. And this is not just Flint we're talking about, right? This is uh, water systems all over the country. Yeah, there's a there's a, a point in the piece with one of the microbiologists I spoke with, a woman from uh, Michigan State University who has been actively studying this crisis. And um, she told me, she said, we know very little about the microbial water quality in pipes and distribution systems and household plumbing. And I jumped in and said, you mean we know very little about that in Flint? And she said, no, I mean, we don't know that much about it at all anywhere. And I'm like, well, that's, that's terrifying. <laughs> and she said, yeah, it should be. And and she's not just some scientist in Michigan dealing with with a thing in Flint. Some of the more, more famous scientists that you heard of, or now famous scientists you've heard of surrounding this case, including Mark Edwards, who's a, a professor at Virginia Tech, um, who broke open this story with his willingness to test the water for lead and other things when the uh, CDC and the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality refused to do it and when governments were refusing to believe what the citizens were saying about the problems with their water, they all say this, that this is a surprisingly limited amount of knowledge for something that most Americans, most people around the world take for granted. You spent quite a lot of time living with a family in Flint in the aftermath of all the headlines. Uh, who were they and how did you get them to let you move into their house? It was not easy. And in this case, I found Gina Luster and her daughter, Kennedy. Kennedy is eight and Gina is in her early 40s. And um, she's a single mom who has been raising her daughter and they've had a number of, of health problems that have been brought on by the tainted water. Um, both of them have tested quite high for the lead content in their blood. And, you know, Gina was not necessarily a, she was not a public advocate of any kind, although now she is through this crisis. She has been transformed into a woman who has really taken on this cause and the cause of Flint itself. I just found something interesting and kind about her it was difficult to make sure that the person, the people I was spending time with felt comfortable with me. So, you know, it was a, it was a course of trial and error. It took a long time to find a family that I felt like had something significant to say. By the time you got there, was the water crisis uh, supposedly sort of under control? That's a tricky thing to say because the water crisis is not under control today. They are replacing some of the pipes, but there are tens of thousands of pipes up there. It's, it's a small uh, piece of, of the puzzle. They've managed to get a, an entire community kind of accustomed to drinking bottled water and attaching filters. But a lot of these folks, you know, find the filters to be a big bother and they're not replacing their cartridges and doing the, those sorts of things. There, there are certainly um, some evidence that added phosphates to the water and efforts to flush the pipes are starting to improve the water quality. But I was assigned this piece in January. We, we started looking at different approaches to how to tell a bigger story about what has happened up there. And I wanted to know, you know, after the debate between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders took place in Flint, after the president of the United States went there, what was life like now, 
And, you know, it's, it's a dull ache is what it is. It, it continues to be a crisis. They never know where the next issue is going to come from. During the course of, of reporting this piece, I was interviewing a professor up there named Laura Sullivan. I actually had to postpone my interview twice. It turned out because she was hospitalized with Shigella, which is a whole nother uh, infectious disease that has had an unusual spike alongside the water crisis in Flint. And that was in July that this new issue was popping up. And there was a press conference in October where the news media was asking, what's next here? You know, just when you think that we've got the, 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 the lead thing down and the Legionella thing is sort of kind of tamed, then the Shigella thing comes up. I, I think that that is one of the, the striking problems here is that the public, of course, can only handle so many stories and so many dramas at one time. They gave their angst to Flint in the first three or four months of 2016, and they think they're done. But Flint's not done with them yet. I want to come back to the family that you stayed with, the uh, the mother and her eight-year-old daughter. We take water for granted in this country. You know, we turn on the faucet and the water comes out and we drink it without ever thinking twice about it. These people are living their lives without a reliable uh, source of, of drinking water. What do they do? It is fascinating. I opened the piece with essentially what turned out to be a test. We weren't using much of the water in the house in the many days I was there. And eventually I had to sort of ask for something to see what would happen if I wanted something as simple as a cup of tea. And it was this laborious process where she she took out bottled water and put it into an osmosis machine and then put it into this and then eventually boiled it and then put it was it was ridiculous and this was one of the most simple things that you or I do in a given day oh, turn on a spout get some water heat it up and drink it so they're still careful to use bottled water to not open their mouths when they take showers so that the water doesn't get in their, in, in their mouth. Because in the shower, there's a filter, but who knows how long the filter's been there? Is it supposed to be taking thing, the, the right things out of it? it you know, the, the list of inconveniences and struggles, which is where they're at now. I mean, you know, so they kind of have a sense of what's going on and they work around it. There's lots of free bottled water up there, although you'd be amazed at how much bottled water you would use if that was all you were drinking. The number of plastic bottles, the a very common sight throughout Flint are these huge plastic bags full of plastic bottles on sidewalks because there's some routine now for the recycling people to pick it up. I mean, this is normal in, in a major American city. Do you have any sense that uh, things will return to what we think of as normal in Flint? It is hard to figure out exactly how that ever happens for a few reasons. They will continue to replace the pipes, but whether they're replacing all the pipes or not is a, is a good question. Whether the public can ever feel truly confident and trusting in their government that lied to them over and over again about whether there was anything wrong with the water is an open question. I assume that, yeah, someday this will be in the back, in the rear view of, of the city. But 
they're in the process right now of essentially trying to redesign an entire water system. They're trying to figure out how do we move the water faster because there are areas of the city where there used to be people who live there who don't who who, who don't, are no people there anymore. So there are sections of the city where water sits in pipes for for days and days, and in the process is in attracting problems, is incubating illness. So you know it is more than just you know once we replace the lead pipes because there's also the galvanized pipes and the galvanized pipes, uh, from what I understand, in some cases are are an even bigger problem because they're not smooth and they continue to hold on to pieces of things that were shed from the lead pipes. And even now, you, you, there are times you turn on the water there and you can see a, a flake of, some, of rust that comes through or a piece of something that comes out of the water. I mean, every time that happens, if you're a parent, how do you even say, um, yeah, okay, well, I'm sure it's okay now. You know, I mean, there are certainly things that have come up for Flint that I think can be very helpful if, if everything goes right if they get enough money to replace the the pipes that they feel they need to replace, if they get the kind of money they need to do the kind of remediation that will help these children who have been lead exposed and may have health effects and health problems their whole lives. I mean, you know, this is a city that that has been badly neglected for a long time. And um, it happens to have this horrifying crisis. And for that reason, there are resources that are coming to it that might actually help a large minority population that otherwise wouldn't have those sorts of resources. We can't let you go without asking how this all affected you personally, both from the standpoint of what it was like to spend time in, in Flint um, and also literally how the water affected you. Well, you know, I didn't take the lead test for any other reason than I was curious about how it worked. In middle of July, after I'd been up there on and off pretty much for a good part of a month or, or so, I happened to be in the, the county health building and I saw the sign that said free lead blood tests. So I went and I filled out the forms and I got a free lead test. And a couple of days later, it turned out I had been lead exposed. Oh my God. And how how would you have been exposed to that? Well, but that's the thing. I mean, I'm living in this home, and yes, I'm taking their shower. I'm taking showers. I'm using some of their water, but I'm also eating in their restaurants in the city. It's not unheard of for people to get exposed to to lead even now up there, and that's the point. Is that yes, there have been efforts to fix a lot of things, but it is still a danger zone up there. It didn't have any real impact on me physically, but it kind of proved the point that this problem is not over. Um, there are still plenty of people there who are being exposed to lead in various ways. Well, Steve, this is uh, such a troubling story on so many levels. Many thanks for going to Flint and uh, writing about it for Undark. It was my pleasure. Steve Fries is a freelance journalist based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he was a Knight Wallace Fellow at the University of Michigan. His work appears in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and now Undark. Joining us now is Seth Manukin, who writes the Tracker column on media and science for Undark. Hi, Seth. 
Hi, David. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, so, big news since we last spoke. There was an election, uh, actually two elections worth talking about. So first, an update on the one we discussed last month, the big vote at the National Association of Science Writers Conference in San Antonio at the end of October. How did that one go? Well, that vote, like our other big national vote, was quite close. And in the end, the proposal to change the bylaws and, and therefore allow non-journalists to serve as officers was not approved. So the rules that have governed the National Association of Science Writers for the past several decades will continue. And those rules stipulate that you need to be a journalist to be one of the four officers, president, vice president, secretary, or treasurer. But I'm also a board member of the NASW, and I think the entire board feels like this is certainly a sign that there are divisions that we need to address and, and we need to deal with. I don't think anyone is looking at the closeness of the vote as a sort of mandate to treat things as they were, but instead as hopefully the starting point of a discussion as to how we can make those members of the organization, namely public information officers that are frustrated by the current arrangement, how to make them feel more a part of the group. And just to re recapitulate, I, uh, one of the reasons this was so controversial was the idea that if public information officers uh, in uh, government institutions were allowed to serve as uh, president or vice president of the science writers organization, that would make it very awkward for the organization itself to take any sort of position on uh, public policy issues that might arise. Yeah, and, and not just public policy issues, but I think possibly even more importantly on issues regarding the way a unit of the government or the administration deals with the press. And, you know, if, if there was a situation where one of our members felt that the Department of Defense or the Energy Department or FEMA or, or any other organization was stonewalling or was not dealing appropriately with the press, it would be, I think, tricky to say the least if the president of the organization also happened to be uh, a PIO for a government agency. And I think that already before the new administration has even been sworn in, just by some of the concerns that have been raised regarding how the Trump administration plans to treat the press, I think what probably felt a little bit like a, a notional concern even a couple of weeks ago, all of a sudden it's a little bit more apparent why that safeguard, why that distance, we, we feel it's important for that to be really built into the system. Uh, so this is a really good segue into that other election that we all paid so much attention to. I want to sound you out on what you think the election results will mean for science journalists in particular. Uh, and uh, most obviously, I guess, is that the president-elect has been no friend to the overwhelming scientific consensus about climate change. How are journalists tackling this subject during the transition? Well, you know, one of the really interesting things um, about the presidential campaign was the almost complete avoidance and, and ignoring of climate change as an issue, which was, I think, really dumbfounding to a lot of a lot of journalists, period, and certainly science journalists and, and journalists that specialize in covering uh, the climate and the environment, because 
A, of the amount of time that was spent focused on really inconsequential issues, and B, the fact that this is not only an issue that the scientific community feels like is is a is perhaps the most pressing issue facing our country and our planet, but a, a huge broad cross-section of Americans also feel that. And I think that was another conversation that the American public deserved to hear and deserved to be a part of before we, we brought in this new administration. And so there's a concern that, once again, climate change and issues dealing with science and involving science could get sort of brushed to the background. Uh, and although, you know, I think climate change is probably the 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 rightly one of the most pressing issues facing science journalists uh you know we're also talking about an administration that has not made clear that it wants to continue to fund the NIH at levels that it's been funded. You know, we have a vice president who does not believe in evolution. So, you know, that there there are a huge number of issues that this administration is is going to be dealing with and I think we have not had the type of either discussion or sort of background research and reporting that that would have been ideal. So what do journalists need to do now? Do they need to be more aggressive or or uh, proactive, I guess, to put it a, a slightly milder way? And do you think the science journalists of America are are really equipped to do that? Well, I guess I wish I had the answer to that. Uh, you know, at the moment, there's sort of such a base level of anxiety and concern, um, an almost existential level of anxiety and concern, and I think an appropriate existential level of anxiety and concern, you know, that there's uncertainty of even how the media is going to function, period, in a Trump administration, uh, never mind how science journalists are going to function. But, you know, for, for science journalists particularly, I think it it gets to something that is very tricky about science journalists. You know, traditionally in all realms of journalism, there's somewhat of an almost oppositional feeling between the subjects of the coverage and the people who are doing the, the covering. A sense that, you know, it's a journalist's job to get at the truth um, and to shine a light on all areas of society and, and all areas of our government. And it's oftentimes not in the best interest of, of those parts of society or of our government to have that light shown. When it comes to science, that, that line has always been a little bit trickier to navigate because there's this assumption that if you are writing about science and if you are a science journalist, you care about the fundamental precepts of science and so therefore are, are allied with scientists. And I think one of the tricky things that we're facing now is whether science journalists are actually going to need to be allied a little bit more closely or appear to be allied a little bit more closely with the scientists and, and with some of the policymakers that they're covering because the the fight is going to be um, potentially on such a fundamental level as to whether we should even take science seriously, whether we should even you know look at experiments and look at evidence as something that deserves to help decide policy. And, you know, so I, th I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see how that relationship evolves. Yeah. Do you have any advice for consumers of science news? I mean, we get so much of our news now from social media. Maybe that's not such a great idea. Yeah, you think? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and I think it's, it's advice that holds 
for consumers of science media and consumers of all media. The press and the media are, are, are right up there with ambulance chasing lawyers is, you know, among the, the least loved members of, of society. But I think that what has happened over the past, say, 10, 15, 20 years is that as a country, we've just we've become much less intelligent consumers of news. And we have sort of abrogated our responsibility of being careful about what it is that our media diet is is made of, what we what we take in. And so, you know, f throughout the early part of this century, that might have been reflected in gravitating towards news outlets that tended to support and affirm your worldview. But those news outlets were still sort of based in the real world to one extent or another. Now, what we see in this past election is that some of the news reports that gained the most traction, especially on social media, are news reports that are totally divorced from reality. Um, you know, stories like the Pope uh, endorsing Trump that had was was completely false and yet was among the more shared stories on Facebook for a, for a given period. So if people are going to look to their social media feeds to get their information, I think one, they need to realize that and, and be very aware that that is a self-affirming feedback loop that what Facebook and Google wants to do is keep you engaged. They want you to click on stories so that they can sell advertising. And you are more likely to click on stories that say that everything you think is true is true. And so we need to look at, when we're doing that, we need to look at, okay, here's a story I clicked through. Is this from a reputable news organization? Is it easy for me to look at this website and find out who is behind it? Who is bankrolling it? Who is financing it? Are, are these reporters actually real people? I think that the charges of media bias that Trump used so effectively, I think we're now seeing what that can lead to. And while it certainly served Trump well, I've talked to plenty of people in Republican circles who are more than a little bit horrified at what has happened. And while neither they nor I nor anyone else is is advocating a return to you know, the 70s, where basically you had three network news stations and a, a small handful of national papers that set the agenda, I do think that it would behoove us as a country to look a little bit more carefully about what we're reading and, and what we're consuming the same way we would, you know, with, with food that we're eating or with anything that we would put in our body. Seth Mnookin writes about media and science for Undark. He's the author of a number of books about science and journalism, and he's director of the graduate program in science writing at MIT. Seth, thanks a lot. Thank you so much, David. GMOs, genetically modified organisms, have been around since the 1970s. Today, you can find GMO products in many processed foods, and GMO corn and soybeans are planted all over the United States and much of the rest of the world. Yet millions of Americans still don't believe GMO foods are safe. In fact, as Undark reported earlier this year, the safety of genetically engineered foods represents a bigger gap between public opinion and scientific consensus than evolution, vaccines, or even global warming. What's going on here? 
Pierre Bienname explains. We are on Fort Hill Farm, a few hours north of New York, and we just heard from one of the 250 dairy cows raised here by Phil Johnson, the owner. These are where our cows have our babies right now. This farm is self-sustaining. The cows are born and raised here, and they eat corn and hay grown on the farm's several hundred acres. Most of the corn Johnson plants and harvests is genetically modified, just like 90% of corn in the United States. Lab scientists have been able to edit an organism's DNA since the 70s. Companies like Monsanto now sell genetically modified seeds that will grow into crops that resist insects, diseases, and even chemicals. Johnson's corn is resistant to a pesticide called glyphosate. Once it's sprayed, the surrounding weeds die while the corn keeps growing. That saved Johnson a lot of trouble killing weeds the old-fashioned way by cutting deep into the soil with tractor blades. We, we have more important things to do than to be out there tilling the soil. We can take better care of our baby calves if we don't have to do all that stuff, for example. We can get our cows bred better. We can make a better quality milk for people to consume. Farmers around the world planted twice as many acres of GM crops in 2015 compared to 10 years earlier. Science may say they're safe to eat, but more than half of Americans feel they aren't, according to a poll conducted in 2014. And consumers have had a while to adjust. GM ingredients have been on sale since the 90s. In 1991, scientists in Oakland, California, wanted to make fruit that could freeze and thaw without going all mushy. So they took genes from a fish, the winter flounder, and put it in a tomato to see if its resistance to icy conditions would carry over. It didn't work out, but genetic modification has. The first GM crop would hit store shelves five years later. And while the fish-freeze tomato never happened, it did inspire surveyors curious to test what Americans knew about GMOs. To do that, they asked a funny question. If you take catfish genes and put them in tomatoes, would they taste a bit like seafood? The survey, commissioned by Rutgers University in 2003, found that most Americans said yes, even though... The right answer is no, of course. That's Stefan Blanc, a philosopher at Belgium's Ghent University. He wrote a paper about why people oppose GMOs, even though science has all but proven that they're safe to eat. People intuitively assume that when you take DNA from the fish, you take like a piece of the essence of the fish and you transfer much more characteristics uh, and traits of that uh, fish than just the traits coded by that DNA, right? Blanc says people get tripped up when they think about what it might mean to transfer DNA from one organism into another. They likely know that the famous double helix determines a creature's appearance, behavior, characteristics, everything really. From there, it's a small step to thinking that a catfish-infused tomato is going to taste a bit fishy. But that's not the case, in part because animals, plants, and all life share the same four building blocks for DNA. DNA is DNA wherever you get it, from a strawberry or from a giraffe or whatever. So we find these four letters in, in, every, in every living creature on Earth. Those letters you might remember from science class are G, C, T, and A. So while this custom tomato might have a few new letters, it's not like they're in a foreign language. They fit right along with the rest of the tomato's genes. Of course, most Americans aren't cracking open science books to form an opinion about designer crops and animals. They go with their intuition, the same way Hollywood screenwriters did with The Fly, where Jeff Goldblum played a scientist who accidentally fuses some of the bug's genes with his own. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. Kara Cute, a researcher at Rutgers Department of Human Ecology, was on the team that decided to ask people the catfish-tomato question back in 2003. 
She and her colleagues published another survey a few years ago, and this time they asked people why they felt the way they did about genetically modified food. They wanted to know if it was a, quote, specific issue or general feeling. The research company Cute Hired thought the question was a bad one. They didn't think anyone would admit that their opinion of GMOs was just based on a general feeling. It turned out that... 50% of our respondents said that their opinion was based on a general feeling, and 34% said it was both a general feeling and a specific issue. So in the case of GMOs, it seems like people are really having just a gut reaction to them. So for 84% of Americans, that's a landslide. A general feeling had at least something to do with their opinion of GMOs. More than half of the correspondents also said they knew very little or nothing about GMOs and one in four hadn't even heard of them. All this information has one food expert pretty frustrated. You know, people don't really know what they are. Susan Yeager teaches nutrition and food studies at NYU. If you stop people on the street randomly and say, what does it mean? I doubt they would really know what it means. But of course, they've heard a lot about frankenfoods and they've heard a lot about um, fish genes and tomatoes and so on and so forth, and that's a little bit scary. GMOs and their byproducts abound in the processed foods we buy today, but they aren't yet labeled as such. The Department of Agriculture has a few years to write the details of a federal GMO labeling bill signed by President Obama this summer. Those looming labels have Monsanto a bit anxious, so they've increased their efforts to talk to shoppers instead of just the farmers they've always done business with. As for Phil Johnson, he follows the whims of the market. He might change his ways if GMO fears were to impact his sales. But until then, GMO use has gone up steadily alongside corn yields. For him, that's a bonus. I feed cows. I like cheap corn. I don't like cheap milk. <laughs> for Undark, I'm Pierre Bienname. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until then, I'm David Corcoran for Undark. <laughs>